you could take a seat for the scripture. Today's readings from 2 Chronicles 6, 12 through 21. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. The word of the Lord. Next Sunday, I'm excited. If you haven't had the chance to interact with Eric and his wife Katie, they'll be worshiping with us next Sunday. I did have these two batteries as backup. I just knew something like that could happen, so I'm prepared. And then another one of my friends is coming as well. His name's Jeff Shu. Uh, so he made the announcement. He's going to be sharing a talk on vocational discipleship, and I can't think of anyone better to talk about the integration of our faith with our everyday work, the relationships at work, the work itself. What does it have to do with, with God, with serving God, and how do those things meet each other. So I'm gonna, I want to encourage all of you, young professional or not, to stick around for that. And I do have to just say one more time, if you plan on ever serving in our children's ministry, if you are a parent of a child in our children's ministry, today is the best day to go ahead and go through the process of live scanning. That's uh, our way of placing a priority on the safety and the security of our kids and that ministry. So all of you, take the time to do that. That's why we have the LiveScan folks here uh, this morning. And again, you can even be excused during my sermon to go and take care of that because it's that important for us. So back to the passage, Second Chronicles chapter 6. We are continuing on in our series on the book of Chronicles. It's the eighth message in our series, and we're calling this series Renew. We're calling it Renew because that is the theme, the purpose, and the point of the entire book of Chronicles. Chronicles was written to bring about a renewal of faith. It was written to bring about a renewal of mission, 
so that if we are struggling with our identity, who am I? What really defines me? If we are struggling with finding our purpose and our mission in life, Chronicles is meant to reorient us to our identity and to our purpose. That's what the book is all about. And today we come to a really important passage in the book of Chronicles. If, if you're unfamiliar with Chronicles, I don't blame you. It's, it's a fairly overlooked book in the Bible. And sometimes as we're reading along story by story, they tend to mesh together and it just seems like a bunch of uh, a random collection of stories. But this passage that we read, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, is the highlight in the entire story of Chronicles. All the commentators and scholars agree if you were to pick the high point in the story of the book, it would be right here. Not only is it the high point in the book of Chronicles, but most scholars of the Old Testament would also agree that this is the high point of the entire story of the Old Testament here in 2 Chronicles 6. That from Genesis to Malachi, it doesn't get any better than this, what we're reading right here. This is a time of peace under the reign of King Solomon. It's a time of, of prosperity for the nation of Israel. But more important than any of those things, it was a time when God was present to His people in a way that He had never been before. He was present to His people, not just Israel, but to the whole world in a way that he had never been before in the temple. So we, we went through First uh, Chronicles and looked at a number of the chapters there. The final 12 chapters of First Chronicles are all about preparation for the building of the temple. A lot of construction details and that kind of thing and the personnel of the temple. And the first five chapters of Second Chronicles is all building to the mo- this moment. And it's more construction details. So we have... What's that? 17 chapters preparing us, building the suspense and the momentum to get to this point, the dedication of the temple. So Chronicles is saying, if you miss the point of this passage, if you miss the point of the temple, you miss the whole point of the book, and you'll miss the central place where renewal happens, where our lives can be renewed, and that is in prayer. 2 Chronicles 6 says, prayer is the entire point of the temple. This chapter is a prayer. It's not just a prayer, but it's a prayer about prayer. So Solomon is praying, and he's praying for people who will be praying, and he's saying, God, when they pray, hear their prayers. And he's praying that the people who would encounter this book and the prayer that he prayed would experience this renewal, this renewal of prayer. And as Isaac alluded to, prayer is something in our lives that I know for me, and in talking with many of you, I, I think we would identify with this reality that prayer is something that often needs renewing. It's not something a lot of us feel naturally good at, that it's our natural strength in our spiritual lives. It can be so confusing. Prayer can just kind of get lost in the busyness of our lives. It can be drowned out by activity. It can become dry. It's often so misunderstood and so difficult for us. Because of all these things, we need renewal when it comes to prayer. 
most people, there may be a few exceptions, but even the nicest, if you're the nicest person out there, the most agreeable person in the room, most likely you still have moments when people know, just don't bother them right now, where you're just grumpy, maybe you're angry about something, you're frustrated, and people can sense, usually they're a nice person, but don't, just don't go near them right now. I have those moments in my life when I'm just not approachable at all. And my kids, when they see this happening, they call me Mad Dad. That's the name they give me because I'll bark something at them or just be sure with them or threaten to make them do chores. And they're just like, Mad Dad, stay away from Mad Dad. And they're right because I'll just say no to anything they ask and just punish them whatever they do. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, if you've read it, you know most of the time Jesus is so approachable. He's so gentle. You read the story in the Gospels of Jesus and you think, most of the time, I would go to Jesus if I'm struggling. I would go to Jesus with anything. But there's one time in particular in the story where nobody wanted anything to do with Jesus. Everybody was like, stay back, stay away. This is mad Jesus. And that's in Mark. You can turn there if you want. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. All the Gospels record this moment in the ministry of Jesus. Mark is pretty detailed about it. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He comes into the temple, the temple which we just read its first dedication. He comes into the temple. It says, they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I just noticed that. I was like, wow, were they sitting on the seats when he overturned the seats? What was going on? And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this might be the most intense moment in the story of Jesus, where he's throwing stuff. He's turning over seats. Animals are flying everywhere. People are saying, I need to go there. He said, no, you're not. You're not going there. And so Jesus here is probably his most furious moment, his most passionate moment in the Gospels. What is he so passionate about? It's prayer. He says, this house was made to be a house of prayer for all nations, all people. And you've made it into a den of robbers. You've made it like, what do robbers do in a den? They're hiding. You've made it into a place. You're hiding behind the temple. You've turned your relationship with God into something mechanical and transactional. Jesus is so passionate to overturn the tables in our lives when it comes to this, when it comes to a renewal of prayer. In the months of October and November as a church, and with our, with our entire church, with our ministry leaders, we were focusing in on our rhythm of prayer. And so one thing I did was I followed up with a lot of you and asked you, how is it going? How is your rhythm of prayer? Those who are leading community groups, I was asking you specifically about this. And what I found is that some of you have a really great prayer rhythm, and prayer is your gift. The other thing I found is that for many of you, prayer is very hard. And to be asked to pray, to be asked to pray daily, you didn't 
necessarily take that so well. You're like, why, is, why am I being asked to do something? Every day, I have enough to do every day. I know it's prayer. I should feel like, oh, okay, if anything, I should be asked to do at church. It's pray. But you were sharing honestly with me that this is really hard. It feels heavy. It feels like one more thing to do that I'm not doing good enough. And I realized this week as I was studying this passage that one of the main sources of our frustration, I think, our disinterest or our neglect of prayer is that we come to it focused, I think, on the wrong thing. We're focused on how much I need to do it. Am I doing it enough? What do I do? What do I say? How does it work? Second Chronicles 6 wants us to focus instead on what God wants to tell us in prayer, what God wants to say to us. So I want to look at three things. We'll look at them one at a time. You'll see them in your outline. We'll fill in the blanks as we go. The first thing that God wants to tell us in prayer that we see from this passage is, I'm here. I'm here. The temple was God's way of telling Israel. It was God's way of telling all humanity, I'm here. See, there's a tension about God that Solomon addresses in this chapter. If you look Again, in chapter 6, I want to read from verses 1 and 2, the very beginning of this text. Solomon said, The Lord said He would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. You read that and ask, which is it? Does God dwell in exalted, thick darkness far, far away? unreachable? Or does God dwell so close to us that He actually has a house on this earth? Theologians call this tension the tension between God's transcendence and His imminence. How can a God who's so far removed above us in His glory, in His holiness, in His mystery, how can that God dwell with human beings and be close? When we are finite, we're limited and we are sinful. We resist Him. God is holy. God is other. God is beyond. How can we say we know anything about God with any certainty? Or how can we believe that we can connect with this God and communicate with Him? If you look back at verse 18, Solomon asked the question, Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet... He says, have regard to our prayers, and may your eyes be open day and night towards this house. So in this prayer, in Solomon's prayer, we, we realize that the temple was God's way of resolving this tension between His transcendence and His imminence or His closeness. Solomon was saying, of course, God cannot be put into a, a box or a house or some kind of container. But the physical structure, the temple itself, was God's way of giving a tangible picture, a visible sign to Israel, to all of humanity, a physical address on this earth to say, I'm not absent. I haven't left this creation. I haven't given up on my purpose and my plan for all humanity. And that purpose, God's heart, God's goal, the ultimate telos of creation is that God would dwell once again with us, that we would know Him in intimate relationship. Everything about the temple 
was about establishing a physical place for people to connect with God, to communicate with God, for prayer. And so the temple was God's way of saying to the world, I haven't gone anywhere, I'm here. Now, how does this all apply to us? I think in a couple ways, first of all, it gives us great encouragement to pray, especially when life is difficult, especially when we're suffering. Secondly, it shows us how important and what length God would go for us to believe those two words, I'm here. First, the encouragement. If you look beyond our passage in verses 22 through 40 in Second Chronicles 6, what we see there are seven scenarios for prayer. Solomon says, if this happens, if people are praying in this situation, God hear them. If this, if this, if this. And the, the seven are this. It says, number one, if people need justice answer that prayer. If people are defeated by their enemies, if your people are in a drought, if there's any affliction or suffering, if people who are not even a part of Israel pray toward the temple, hear them. Number six, if they're in battle. And number seven, when people sin and they are suffering the consequences for that sin, in all those scenarios, Solomon says, hear them, hear their prayers. I'm still here. Those three words, I'm still here, are some of the most powerful words that we hear another human being speak to us. When you're a little kid, maybe this happened to you when you were little and you were lost in the grocery store or some other store, and you're in the aisle and you're, turning, you're looking around and just panic floods your heart because you're like, I'm lost forever. My parents have abandoned me. Mom! And you just scream out and your mom just appears from around the other aisle and says, I'm still here. Immediately, you feel the flood of relief. Now I'm safe. I'm not an abandoned child. If you've ever really let someone down or wronged them, and you're afraid to tell them, you're afraid what their reaction might be, but you tell them. And if they respond back to you and say, I'm still here, it's so meaningful. It means the relationship is still intact. All those fears kind of flood and wash away. I'm still here. Maybe the greatest difficulties in our spiritual lives are when God seems so far away. He seems so distant to us. There are times in our lives when it does seem to us like God is dwelling in a thick darkness. He seems absent from what we're going through. We can't see Him. He doesn't speak audibly to us. He doesn't reach out with a physical hand or arm to embrace us or to comfort us. And in those moments, I think what we long for, even more than a resolution to whatever we're facing, even more than an answer to the question we may be asking, is we long for His presence. We long for Him to say, I'm still here. And it's in prayer that God wants to communicate this to us. And He says, I promise Come to me. I'm always here. I'm still here. In addition to this encouragement that we can get by knowing that God is always here, that He tells us He is still here, we see that Solomon's prayers are full of what we would call anthropomorphisms. You say, say what? What is that? They're describing God... 
God is being described in Solomon's prayers as a human being, like He's one of us. He says in verse 15, the temple is proof that God spoke with His mouth and that with His hand He's fulfilled His promises. And then in verse 20, it says, may your eyes be open and your ears be open day and night toward this house. At the very end of the passage in verse 40, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers of this place. Why pray to God like that? He doesn't have a body like us. And though God doesn't have a literal mouth and hands and eyes and ears, praying to God in human terms and ways that we understand, it makes Him feel close. And He says, I want you to pray to me like this. We sense His presence and His nearness when we describe Him in those ways. But this language points also beyond the symbol of the temple in the Old Testament to its greater reality fulfilled in Jesus. In John 1.14, it tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in Jesus, God took on the literal mouth, the literal hands and eyes and ears so that He could tell us, I'm here in the most complete and personal way He possibly could. This is a part of the uniqueness of Christianity. If you're here and you are processing Jesus, you have questions, you're investigating the Christian faith, this is something that you should consider, that Christianity is the only belief system that offers you a God who can say to you in all genuineness, no matter what you're facing, I've been there and I'm here. We've been reading through the book of Hebrews in our Scripture reading plan. In the book of Hebrews, it makes this point over and over again. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus, who was God, He was made perfect, a complete Savior through suffering. He suffered. He had to be made like His brothers in every single respect, human in every way. Because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He can help those who are tempted. And He is able to sympathize with all of our weakness. This is why He's the perfect Savior, and this is why He's the perfect recipient of prayer, because He suffered and He sympathizes with us. He knows what it's like to feel forsaken by God and to still try to pray. That is unique. Among all other belief systems, there are systems, uh, theistic systems of belief that say there is a God, but He is transcendent. You pray to a transcendent God. There are Eastern religions and philosophies that say you pray to the universe, the impersonal force, but only in Christianity can you pray to a God who can say with all genuineness, I've been there and I'm here. That's the first thing God wants to tell us in prayer, that I'm here. Secondly, He wants to tell us, I hear, H-E-A-R, I hear, that I'm listening you go into your bulletin, and all the middle schoolers and high schoolers, you can do this for me now. You can pull out page 4 in your bulletin, verses 18 through 21. Look at the different ways that Solomon points out and calls for God to listen and to hear. Verse 19, if you underline this, have regard to the prayer of your servant, oh my God, listening to the cry and the prayer your servant prays. And then in verse 20, underline that you may listen. Verse 21, and listen to the pleas of your servant. Last sentence, and listen from heaven. Second to last word, underline here. When you hear, forgive. 
Solomon asked God to listen. And then in all the scenarios that come after this, those seven scenarios of prayer in 22 through 40, he asked God for the same thing. He says, just hear, hear the prayers, all these kinds of prayers, the pleas of anyone who prays to you, whatever situation they find themselves in when they pray to the temple. And related to our struggles with the feeling of the absence of God is another question about prayer, and that is, when I do pray, when I do ask God for things, is He listening? Does He hear? Does it make any difference? How do I know that God hears my prayers? Solomon, in verses 19 through 20, gives a reason why God has to listen to our prayers, that He promised to listen. If you look, look there again. He says, have regard for our prayers because we pray toward the place where you've promised to set your name. Because this place has your name, he says, you've promised to hear our prayers when we pray in your name. God's name in the Bible, it's a very rich concept. It's a very full concept. Like any other name, like our names, it represents who we are and what we do. But praying in God's name is how God's actions and attributes become accessible to us in our situation. So God's name in Chronicles, it has to do with His accessibility. How do God's actions, what He does and who He is, how does that become accessible to me and what I'm facing? Chronicles says when you pray in His name, His actions and attributes are accessible to you. Name is about access. At my former church, one of our members was a former professional baseball player. In fact, he was one of my childhood heroes, and I had his poster hanging in my room. So I was just like a giddy child every time I saw him in church. It was hard for me to focus on anything else. There he is. But um, now he does some radio announcing. He does baseball radio announcing. And one time he offered to get some great tickets for a Dodgers game for me and a few other people. And not only that. We got to go up into the press box. So we had that access to get into the press box and walk around and meet all kinds of Dodger greats. Dodger fans, I'm sorry if you're jealous, but I met Rick Monday and even got to shake hands with the great Vin Scully. And that was amazing. So if I tried to get into the press box and meet all these legends, on the basis of my name, if I stand there into the entrance and say, I'd like to come in and, and meet Vin Scully, Rick Monday, maybe some other folks. Say, well, who are you? Where's your badge? Oh, well, I'm Eric Kapoor. I'm the pastor of Trinity OC. Can I, can I come in? They would say, no, you don't have access to this section of Dodger Stadium. But because I came in the name of a former professional baseball player and ESPN radio announcer, I was welcomed in. I had all the access I wanted and could meet anybody that I wanted to meet. We struggle with prayer because we think our access to be heard and listened to is based on our name, our actions, our attributes. Am I praying enough? Am I praying consistent enough? Am I saying the right things? Am I praying with passion and enough faith to get God's attention to hear me and to answer me? But the temple was God's way of saying no one can come into God's presence. No one has access to God on their name. But everyone, anyone, 
has access to God based on His name. Those who sin, yes. Those who are not Jewish, access. Those who God is disciplining for their sin, access. Those who are suffering, access. Those who are in need of help, access. Because of the temple, because of the sacrifices of the temple, God says, I hear them. I listen to their very imperfect and feeble prayers, and I answer them. And what we see from the larger biblical story is that the temple's purpose as a place of prayer in God's name is fulfilled and completed in Jesus. He is the greater temple. God's name is fully known. His actions and His attributes are most clearly seen in His Son, in Jesus. Instead of praying towards the temple then, Jesus said we're to pray in His name. And He said crazy things about this when we do pray in His name in John 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. When we pray in the name of Jesus, it's not just a way of saying, now I'm done. We just kind of put it on the end. That becomes a habit for us. This prayer is over in the name of Jesus. It's not a magical incantation, but we are acknowledging and trusting our prayers are accepted and have access to God, not because of our name, but because of His, because of His perfect life and saving work. God's actions, God's attributes are fully accessible to me in my situation. Isaac mentioned he's a professor at Biola. Biola is an important institution uh, here locally, and some of you may know the name R.A. Torrey. He's one of the founders or one, of, I think, the first dean at Biola. There's a story about R.A. Torrey. One time before he went to speak at a conference, he was in Australia, he was given a little note. And the note said, Dear Dr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something I am confident is God's will, but I do not get it. I've been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years, superintendent of Sunday school 25 years, and an elder for 22 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer. I can't understand it. Can you explain it to me? And it said that Tori read the note, and while he was up there speaking, he read the note out loud, and he said, this man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member for 30 years, faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in his church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. And after he was done speaking, the gentleman who had submitted that note, he came up to Dr. Tory and said, you hit the nail on the head. That is what I've been doing. Praying in Jesus' name can give us, at the same time, great humility and great confidence. It gives us great humility because we don't come and we don't have access for any of our prayers based on anything we do, but solely based on the name of Jesus. It's not us and it's our name, but His. Great humility, but great confidence. Because the Father never says no whatever the Son asks. God answers us when we pray in the name of Jesus. As Soren Kierkegaard said, this is our comfort because God answers every prayer for He either gives us what we pray for or something far better. Jesus takes our prayers. We pray in His name and He perfects those prayers so that God always answers us. He gives us what we ask or something far better. 
God wants to say to us in our prayers, I'm here, I hear. And lastly, the third point and final point, I forgive. It's the last word in verse 21. Solomon says, listen to the pleas of your servant, of your people. When they pray toward this place, listen from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Biblical forgiveness, what does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness is the release of a great debt. It's released. Forgiveness is the easing and the lifting of a heavy burden. Forgiveness is erasing a record forever. That word, those two words, I forgive, are meant to be powerfully liberating. They're meant to powerfully release us and lift our burdens. I forgive. A pattern that I've noticed doing marital counseling is the crucial importance of guarding against what I've come to call a shallow forgiveness, shallow forgiveness. This is when couples say, I'm sorry, and move on without ever getting to the deep and the transformative work of true forgiveness. True forgiveness forges new bonds. True forgiveness creates deeper intimacy in a relationship, especially in marriage. True forgiveness is what strengthens and renews the relationship. And so rather than conflict being avoided, conflict should be entered into because you know on the other side the relationship will be renewed through forgiveness. True forgiveness happens when the hurt and the offense is expressed and heard and fully owned, and then the hurt or the offense is fully released, erased, and no longer stands as a barrier between two people. And when couples build a bank of that kind of true forgiveness, they start to feel like we can make it through anything. We can handle any conflict. On the other hand, shallow forgiveness misses these opportunities for renewal because the hurt and the offense is never fully expressed, and so that the hurt or the offense is never fully released or let go of. And so when something big happens, all of a sudden, all the offenses and the hurts of the past come pouring out. And that's when things get really difficult. I share that because in the same way, analogous to our close relationships, Shallow forgiveness is one of the most common things that prevents us from experiencing powerful renewal in our relationship with God. There's two ways we miss out on this renewing power of hearing God say to us, I forgive, and that creating in our hearts an incredible revival of love for God. The two ways that we, we miss it. Or when we say, on the one hand, I'm not that bad. Or on the other hand, we say, I'll never be good enough. First, I'm not that bad. Tuesday was Halloween, yes. But it was also the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And I've been feeling a lot of Presbyterian pastor guilt. Because I haven't said anything about it leading up to it. I didn't write any notes or blogs on it, any, any of it. So here's my time. What sparked the Reformation? as many of you may know, was the nailing of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther on the door of the church, the chapel at Wittenberg. The first of these theses was, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. 
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That is the spark that set on fire a reforming and renewing movement of the gospel that we're still experiencing the benefits from. And what was so radical about that is Martin Luther has said, the way you grow as a Christian is not by learning to repent less so you're better and better and you're more and more good, where you outgrow your need for repentance because you're less and less of need, in need of the saving work of Jesus. Instead, he said, we grow by repenting more and more deeply. We grow in our need of repentance because we see more and more of our sin and more and more of the holiness of God. And when those two things come together, we're convinced of our great need and the great provision for our need that God has given to us in Jesus. And when those two things come together, we experience something that's powerfully liberating, releases the burden, we experience God saying to us, I forgive you. Sometimes we say, I'm not that bad, but other times we say, I'll never be good enough. It's kind of paradoxical, but we can also magnify our sin in such a way that we refuse to receive the forgiveness of God, and it lacks the power in our lives. We refuse to forgive ourselves. We hold on to our failures and our mistakes. As Isaac was saying in our prayer of confession time, we're paralyzed by perfectionism. This is another way that we refuse to hear God saying, I forgive you. Why do we hold on to things? Mistakes, failures, shortcomings, sins. Why do we hold on to those things and why can't we let them go? If you're like me and you experience that, if you carry around your sin, your shortcomings, your mistakes, often you're saying things like this to yourself, I can't let it go. How could I do that? I'm better than that. We hold it against ourselves. We say, I should be better than that. And we start beating ourselves up. I should do better. We look at ourselves and our identity primarily through the lens of how we're falling short. How am I weak? How am I failing and making mistakes? Or we keep replaying it in our minds. Oh, I should have done that. I should have said that. This is how I'll be better next time. We dwell on our failures. But when God says, I forgive you, he says, I've let it go. I'm not thinking about it. As far as from the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. He says, I don't see you through the lens of your sin. That's not how I look at you. That's not your identity. He says, I don't hold this against you. He says, I won't bring this up against you ever again. So when God says, I forgive you. When we find ourselves holding on to our sin and saying, well, I can't forgive myself, we need to learn that we need to repent not only of the bad things we do, but of our goodness. And trusting in our goodness, our achievement, our performance to be our Savior instead of Jesus. If you turn to the front of your bulletins, I want to close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon, shared by Wilfred this week with me as we were talking in email about prayer. This is a great quote. Spurgeon said, Prayers are instantly noticed in heaven. The moment Saul began to pray, the Lord heard him. Here is comfort for the distressed but praying soul. Oftentimes a poor broken-hearted one bends his knee, but can only utter his wailing in the language of sighs and tears. Yet that groan has made all the harps of heaven thrill with music. That tear has been caught by God and treasured 
in the lack, the lacrimatory of heaven. Our God not only hears prayer, but he loves to hear it. What is a lacrimatory? It's a vial where tears are stored. The bottle to keep tears. Friends, God loves to hear your prayers. Even your most feeble prayer, even the smallest turning of your heart towards him, even if it's just a sigh or a groan or a tear. God loves to hear your prayers because he loves to say to you, I'm here. I hear and I forgive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we can come and pray in your name, that we know we have access. No matter what we're facing, what we've done, how good we feel we're doing, we have access into the throne room of our Heavenly Father. And I pray that you would spark in our souls a great renewal of prayer, that it wouldn't feel like a duty or a burden or a heavy thing to be invited and called to commune and to connect and to communicate with you. And I pray that you would train the ears of our soul so that we would be able to hear you say these things deep into our spirit, that we would believe you when you say these things are true. And that would transform our lives, that would enable us to be people of great faith and hope who are filled with grace, more ready to give grace when you call us to serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.